Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Edouard Macherie, Distinguished Professor in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh. His new book, Philosophy Within Its Proper Bounds, is just out from Oxford University Press. There are five people on a track and a runaway trolley that will hit them, and you are on a footbridge over the track with a large person whose body can stop the trolley in its tracks. Should you push the large person to his death to save the five on the track? Using hypothetical cases such as these and questions about them to elicit judgments, is a prominent method of analytic philosophy to discover modal or necessary truths, truths about what must be the case. The method is used to consider what action is right, whether free will requires the ability to do otherwise, whether knowledge requires something more than justified true belief, whether the mind must depend on the body, and so on. In his new book, Mashri draws on more than a decade of experimental philosophical and psychological research by himself and others to argue that the method of cases should be shelved. On his view, variations across study subjects by demographic factors such as age and by presentation effects such as the order in which cases are presented show that the results of the method are fundamentally unreliable and that we should suspend judgment about the results. He recommends instead a reorientation of the mainstream analytical philosophical tradition. Rather than seeking modal truths, philosophers should limit themselves to modally modest questions, and they can engage in a modified psychological form of conceptual analysis in which we seek to understand what sets of automatic inferences individuals or groups tend to draw rather than seeking conceptually necessary truths. This is a very challenging book, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, Edouard Machery. Are you there? Yes, I'm there. Hello, Carrie. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? Very good. Um, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation about philosophy within its proper bounds, um, which I take to be a, your latest salvo in a way in, in a, or attempt to, to reorient um, the way a lot of analytic philosophy has been done um, in the past, over the past, you know, 50 years or so or a bit more. Um, before, before we get into the actual argument and, and material of the book, um, I'd like to start with a question about, you know, your background in philosophy how you came to the subjects that you write about, um, and how you came to write about this book. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm uh, French, as you may hear now, and um, 
as um, all French students, I discovered philosophy in high school and I fell in love with it. And since high school, I've been a philosopher. So I, I have to say, I somehow got tired of philosophy uh, during my college years. But then I discovered naturalistic philosophy and my love for philosophy was was renewed. In fact, uh, much of my way of doing philosophy came from a trip uh, I, I did to Rutgers. I spent two years at Rutgers and uh, Steve Stitch invited me there. And during these uh, two years, I uh, changed or transformed my way of doing philosophy and I acquired my naturalistic orientation, uh, uh, my, my naturalistic way of doing philosophy. Now, um, I um, for the topics I'm interested in, I have some, I'm fairly eclectic. I, I'm a mostly a philosopher of cognitive science and a philosopher of science. I work on the psychology of concepts, on psychology of racism, on psychology of biases, on the relationship between evolution and cognition, on moral psychology. I do a lot of ex experimental philosophy. And more recently, I've been uh, looking at uh, statistics and the philosophy of statistics. So I'm fairly eclectic. But there are two trends in my uh, way of doing philosophy. First, I take science very seriously, and I'm really concerned in uh, uh, learning from science and then using science to inform our, our way of doing philosophy. And, and second, I'm, I'm always uh, tend to have skeptical tendencies. I'm always concerned with the limitation of our knowledge. And this book, in a sense, expresses these two trends in my way of doing philosophy. It's very much inspired by empirical work, and it's also about the limitation of philosophical knowledge. Now, that book itself is philosophy within its proper bounds, is the outcome of maybe 15 years of debate about the significance of experimental philosophy for how we do philosophy. And, uh, you know, the opponents of experimental philosophy have written a few books, but nobody uh, among the proponents of experimental philosophy has defended the philosophical significance of this uh, methodology's way of doing philosophy. And that's, that's somehow uh, was the goal of this book. Um, it started three years ago. I was invited to give a talk by uh, Dave Chalmers and Michael Stravens at NYU. I wrote this long paper, but it was full of holes. I decided it would be a short book, and three years later, it was 250 pages. Uh, you know, you know how it goes. <laughs> right. I do. I do. Um, well, good. I mean, that's, that does, um, I think orient us very well. I mean, cause it, it is driven by your, your and others, um, experimental philosophy work. And it's very clear that the, the idea is to draw from those results, some sort of, you know, deeply, uh, uh, philosophical implications or, or more so implications for philosophy itself. Um, and they are skeptical as, as you, as you mentioned. So let me, let me just to, to jump right in. Uh, you start with the method of cases, right? That's the target. That's been the, the target of a lot of X5, not all of it, but a good portion of it. Um, uh, so the first step obvious is to say, what is the method of cases? Um, what is it used for? By whom? For what purposes? Um, and so could you orient us a bit about what you call the method of cases um, and maybe give one or two you know, examples of, 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 of the method of cases? Great. So um, I think the first thing to say is uh, for me, a case just is a piece of text. It's a short text text that describes a situation, an actual situation sometimes, but often 
a hypothetical, merely possible situation. So a case just is a just just is a piece of text. The method of cases is a use of text pieces of text of cases to describe actual or possible situations. And uh, we use what we take to be the case in these possible or actual situations in order to derive uh, philosophical conclusions as premises of philosophical arguments. Um, so I think uh, it's, it's a bit of an abstract characterization. I think at this point, an example, as you suggested, would be one or two examples would be extremely helpful. Um, an example I often use is a Frankfurt case. Um, um, and the Frankfurt case goes as, I mean, the context of the Frankfurt case is the following one. There is, uh, in action theory, in the philosophy of free will and responsibility, a very important principle called the principle of alternate possibilities. And that principle says an action is free or one is responsible for an action only if one could have done otherwise. So that principle states a necessary condition for responsibility or for free will, depending on how it's formulated. Now, it's a model claim, right? It's a claim about what's necessary for an action, about necessities. And how do we know whether this claim is true or false, right? I mean, that's the kind of claims philosophers are interested in. So here's a way philosophers typically go about assessing that claim, that model claim, that's necessary, that claim about necessities. They, they look at possible situations and a, a situation in which someone has done something, but she could not have done otherwise. And then they look at whether in that situation the agent is responsible for, uh, for her action. So let me give you a concrete example. That's called a Frankfurt case, um, developed by the philosopher Harry Frankfurt back in the 1960s, and there's been tons of, tons of, of such cases. So just imagine that Black uh, is a neurosurgeon, he's a, he's a committed Democrat, and he, uh, <laughs> he wants in two, two, 2020s Democrats to win. Oh, let's say he was in 2008, uh, Barack Obama to win. So what he did in 2008 is that he put a chip uh, in the brain of, uh, of, of, a, of a voter, call it, let's call it Smith. And so this chip works as follows. If Smith is going to vote for Obama, the chip will, will not do anything. But if, if, the, if Smith is going to vote for McCain, or was it McCain in 2008? Let's say it was McCain. For McCain, it, uh, um, uh, the chip is going to fire and uh, Smith is going to change his mind and vote for Obama nonetheless. So in that situation, Smith could not do otherwise. Either he votes for, for Smith, for, for Obama on his own, or he wants to vote for McCain, the chip fires, and he ends up voting for Obama. So he could not have done otherwise. Let's suppose that, that uh, in November, on election day, he goes to the poll on his own, votes for Obama, the sheep does nothing, and so on and so forth. Mm. Uh, Obama gets elected. Now, the question, in that situation, was Smith responsible for his action? For, and the, most people think, yes, he was. Uh, but nonetheless, of course, in that situation, he could not have done otherwise. So here what we have is, is a situation, a possible situation, described by a text, a case, where he could not have done otherwise, but nonetheless, he's responsible for his action. So what we have is a counterexample to the model claim to the necessity claim that is articulated by the principle of alternate possibilities. Right? And I think that's a great example of the method of cases. A case, the Frankfurt case, describe a situation, a, a model situation, a possible situation, what, whole, what we take to, to be true in that situation. Smith is responsible for, her, for his action, despite the fact that he could not have done otherwise. That fact, we take it to bear on the, 
on a modal claim, a modal claim of interest to philosophy. So I think that's, that's the way the method of cases uh, works in, in, in philosophy. I, I think that's, that's a good example uh, of, of, it, of its functioning. Um, now, it's important to... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say the, uh, the fact, but you're, you're about to answer my question anyway. So go ahead. Right, so, so I, I wanted to uh, also make it clear about making clear that the cases in philosophy are used for many purposes. And um, you know, sometimes they're just used to illustrate an idea. Sometimes they're just used to challenge the reader. You know, they provoke the reader. They push him or her to think about difficult matters. And I have no objection against all these users. What I'm really concerned with is when we take um, a fact to hold in a situation described by a text, by a, by a case, and we use that fact to uh, draw philosophical conclusions or to bear on some philosophical arguments. So that is a specific use of the method of, of cases that I'm interested in, in uh, philosophy within its proper bounds. Um, okay, so uh, you give a couple different interpretations of what the, you know, the, the outcome, right? I mean, in this case, uh, we make, well, what might be described as a judgment about um uh, about whether Smith Smith is or is not responsible for the vote, or you know, um, yeah. So um, that's so that's the fact. The fact is our judgment um, about the case, right? Um, or at least, or well, there's a couple different interpretations here. So I just want, was wondering if you could uh, briefly say what your, what your minimalist interpretation of, of the fact is, you know, what, what it is that is the outcome of the case. Good. So, so, uh, let me clarify a, a small point. So the fact is not the judgment. The fact is what holds in this possible situation, right? So, in th- so in that possible situation, is it the case that Smith is responsible for his action or not? That's, that's a fact. Now, of course, we as readers of the deck make a judgment about this situation. And there are many ways of, of, and the fact is truth maker of the judgment we make about the situation. Now there's many ways of thinking about uh, the judgment we make. And there are, uh, in the book, I distinguish three possible interpretations of this judgment. On the one hand, you have the exceptionalist tradition, then you have the particularist tradition, and then uh, the particular interpretation of the judgment, and then you have the minimalist interpretation of the judgment. Now, the exceptionalist interpretation of the uh, judgment really says that the uh, 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 um, propositional attitude that we form when we read a case isn't at all a judgment, really. It's a misnomer to call it a judgment. It's a distinct type of mental state, right? It uh, would be, for example, an intuition, Assuming, for example, that intuitions are not judgments. There could be a distinct type of propositional attitude. According to the particularist uh, interpretation of uh, the judgment listed by cases, um, this judgment is a genuine judgment, but it's not, a, it's not an everyday kind of judgment. It's uh, a specific type of judgment that has distinctive properties. It could have a distinctive phenomenology. It could have a distinct modal content. It could be justified in a particular way, or it could be it could be uh, 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 it could be an analytic judgment. It could be analytically true. And according to the minimalist uh, conception, the minimalist interpretation, the one I really endorse, um, the judgment we make in response of cases is just a good old-fashioned judgment. 
It's just a judgment. There is no difference between the judgment I make in responding to a philosophical case, the Gödel case, the Frankfurt case, the Trolley cases, and so on and so forth, the Gettier case, and the judgments I make when I read a newspaper, when I read uh, a novel, when I read about uh, Trump and make a moral judgment about Trump's last behavior, Trump's most recent uh, outburst, and so on and so forth. You know, there, there is no... According to minimalist interpretation, the judgments we make in philosophy are just of the same kind as the judgments we make in everyday life when we read cases and when we make judgments about the situation described by, by text in general. Now, that's the three possible interpretations. Not really a judgment, another proposition attitude, a distinct type of judgment, and then just a good old-fashioned judgment. And I think the third one, the minimalist interpretation, really is a correct interpretation of the method of cases. So, but could could you just um, what is the importance of establishing that that these judgments are just or that these are just everyday judgments? Really good question. I mean, I think there are. I think it bears on in part on uh, their justification and on um, uh, in a sense what would be required to show that they are uh, wrong. One may think, for example, that if there are intuitions, and if intuitions are not a species of judgment, a form of judgment, but a distinct propositional attitude, then the justification is going to be of a distinct kind. And we're going to have to look at a specific form of justification to assess a method of cases. If, for example, uh, a particularized conception is right, and if um, the method of cases, the judgments issued by the method of cases are uh, analytically justified, right? Then we're going to have to look at the analytic justification to address them. By contrast, if it's just good old-fashioned judgment, then the kind of consideration we use to assess our judgments in everyday life become uh, becomes relevant. Uh, so I think really what's at stake in trying to clarify the method of cases, in addition to just getting it right, is just to try to see what kind of arguments we're going to be able to use to assess whether or not we can trust the judgments we make in response to cases. Okay, good, good. Um, okay, so those are the methods, and they're used throughout, you know, epistemology and ethics. You know, you mentioned trolley cases, um, philosophy of mind occasionally, um, and so on and so forth, right? Um, and you, uh, among other people, have been spending, as you mentioned, the past 10, 15 years have been doing XFI, you know, which started out as this sort of radical thing. And now it's, it's become a part of, you know, the, tr the, the, the philosophical universe, um, uh, for sure. Um, could you say something about the, uh, the gist, I mean, there's so many different empirical findings now, but the gist of what those findings are that are relevant to your argument against the method of cases, yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, um, expert of philosophy now has grown uh, uh, enormously. I, I, there are more than 300 or, or 400 papers written over the last 15 years reporting experimental findings that bear on philosophical questions. And part of this tradition is really a purely descriptive. It's a piece of cognitive science, or, or, and it does not really bear on the critical project I'm interested in. But if you look at the studies that bear on the critical project I'm interested in, it's it's natural to distinguish two kinds of finding. 
demographic effects on the one hand and what I call presentation effects. So demographic effects just is uh, uh, just are uh, demo, demo, demographic effects just are the finding that um, often people respond differently to cases depending on their identity, depending on their gender, on their culture, on their age, on where they on when they're born, and so on and so forth. Presentation effect uh, is a different type of effect. It suggests that um, um, uh, that people respond differently to a single case when superficial aspects of this case are, are, are modified. So, for example, a given case could be following another case or, be, or, or, or rather could be before this other case, and people are going to respond differently to, the, to, the, to a given case depending on its order. Or we could have what, what psychologists call a framing effect. You change a very superficial aspect of a case, and then you have a dramatic impact on uh, people's judgments in response to a case. So that's a, that's a two type of effects. Let me give you an example. Maybe that, I suppose that could be uh, that could be uh, helpful at this point. A great example of demographic effect is something that uh, the psychologist uh, Fari Kushman and uh, uh, Eva Anikainen and I just have recently published in Cognition. So we looked at uh, trolling cases, um, more, more precisely at the footbridge case, where you have to decide whether it's okay or permissible to push someone causing his or her death in order to save five, five people. Uh, I think all philosophers and most, most listeners will be familiar with that case. And what we found is that uh, uh, depending on when you're born, you're going to be giving different answers to that question. So millennials are much more likely to judge that it's permissible to push the la- to push this person and to cause her death in order to save five person. By contrast, baby boomers and people born uh, uh, people born in the 1980s are much less likely, of course, to uh, judge it permissible. So what we have here is a response to a very important case in ethics, in normative ethics, namely the food, which case really depends on when when you're born. Um, so that's one type of demographic of demographic effect. I think the lesson of that of that case is that if you're in a footbridge, make sure there's no millennial behind you. I think that's <laughs> a, that, I think that's an important lesson of that case. Uh, is, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, is it because they're millennials or because they're twenty years old? Excellent question. So we looked at that in detail, uh, and it's not an aging effect. It is, it is really uh, a generation effect. So uh, it was actually a very complicated research project, and we had to disentangle just a, an aging effect. So younger people respond differently from older people from a generation effect. And that's because they're millennials. And that correlates, you know, that correlates for example, with decrease in empathy among millennials compared to, compared to people born in previous generations. So millennials feel less empathy. And we know that empathy matters quite a lot in people's judgments to, uh, in response to the footbridge case. And also, uh, uh, also says something related to uh, religiosity. Um, so it, it actually makes quite a lot of sense given the existing literature. And a presentation, a presentation effect is the following kind. So uh, the switch case is like a footbridge case, except you don't have to push someone. You just have to reorient, uh, to reorient uh, the trolley in order to save one person, but uh, to save five people, but thereby causing the death of one person. So you don't have to physically act on the person. Now, um, um, as, as, as it turns out, whether you find that it's permissible to pull the switch and to reorient the trolley, saving five people, but causing the death of one person, depends on whether or not you've seen the footbridge before. 
So if you've seen the full bridge case before, you find you're much less likely to find it permissible than if, if you first see the switch case and then the full bridge case. So your reaction to the switch case really depends on the order of presentation. Right? That's a case of presentation effects. And the conclusion uh, I want to say is that for nearly all the cases in philosophy, there is either a demographic effect or a presentation or a presentation effect, and sometimes, of course, there are both. And I think that's fairly tr troubling if one is a philosopher. Um, and how how strong are I mean, there's there is a lot of variation uh, in in these results. So could you you know before we you know, sort of get to your arguments about you know how we're being fooled by these these artifacts, right? Um, uh, could you could you say a bit about uh, the the variation in the results themselves because some some studies or some I guess studies of the methods of particular scenarios or particular cases um, don't exhibit the variation where or variations that you've tested uh, whereas others do um, so how and and in some cases the variation is significant or or I don't mean statistically significant. I mean, I mean, it's it's a it's a large effect, and in other cases, it's really small, and and you know who knows how how significant it is in a non-statistical sense. So could you could you give us a, give us a sense of the variation in the variations? Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's an excellent question. So there's actually quite you're right. There's actually quite a bit of uh, of uh, variation in 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 the results. Um, and it's it really depends on the case we are uh, looking at. Sometimes the value, sometimes, for example, if you look at uh, the um, um, uh, the switch case, I believe, uh, and if you compare uh, USA versus China, in at least one study there is a thirty percent difference, which is uh, 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 you know um, quite substantial. You move from eighty to fifty percent. Now for the order effect, it varies quite a bit. Sometimes the effect is really small, 10 to 15 percent. Sometimes it's more substantial, 20 to 30 percent difference. Um, and by percent here, I mean the proportion of people who would give one answer rather than, rather than the other. Now, that, 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 that may seem, and, and there's a bit of, of variation from, from, from case to case. I mean, I, I, um, uh, you know, I don't think there's any specific rule or law that, that this variation follows. But I think it's worth, worth keeping in mind that sometimes this variation can be compounded, right? So you can have a framing effect, which is compounded with um, uh, an order effect, which then may be compounded by cross-cultural variation. And when you add these various types of these various influences on our judgment, you may end up with fairly substantial variation, right? You may end up with most people saying one thing, uh, uh, for example, in one culture, and many people saying something else in another culture. Uh, so that's actually it's it's it it it, it is a possible uh, it is um, uh, uh, um, uh, a possible fact um, it is a possible it is a possibility. So one one last sort of meta meta question here um, has have you done or anybody done a meta analysis of like are there particular areas of philosophy whose cases are particularly subject to these variation effects these or, or, in other words, is I mean I don't want to I don't want to name names, but uh, are there are there particular areas of philosophy whose cases are worse off and others where they're better off, or is it just kind of all over the map 
in terms of the philosophical areas that are affected? Uh, that's really a very good question. I, to my knowledge, nobody has done that piece of work, and I think that's an excellent piece, an excellent project that that should be um, done. So I can just report my uninformed, uh, my unsystematic sense, and my 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 uh, no, unsystematic sense of whether there is variation across areas of philosophy is that the answer is no. I think it does affect nearly all areas of philosophy to the same extent. The only difference is that some areas of philosophy have, have attracted a lot of attention. So uh, ethics and practical ethics has been maybe the main source of inspiration for experimental philosophers and psychologists working on similar topics. So there's a lot of findings in uh, uh, involving cases drawn from ethics, much less if you look at metaphysics, at philosophy of mind, uh, there's a bit in a philosophy of language, uh, more in, in epistemology. Um, so I think there's a bit of variation uh, in the type of areas that have been examined. And, uh, but independently of that, I, my sense is that all areas suffer from um, uh, the two effects I mentioned earlier. Okay. Um, good. So... Uh... So then we, we get, you know, we've, we've got the method of cases and we have the experimental results showing, you know, variation where, where we would not want such variation. Um, and you, you argue that uh, we're being, as you put it, fooled by, by cognitive artifacts, right? That the, that the judgments that we're making are, you know, fundamentally unreliable. They're not just, you know, unreliable or untrust, but it's in fundamentally so, or as you also put it, severely deficient. Um, so can you um, give us the gist of your argument to that conclusion? Absolutely, yes. So um, the basic idea is that um, for our judgments, for so we're entitled to trust uh, uh, our judgments about the situation described by cases only if those judgments are reliable. And uh, the, the, the argument is that what we've learned is that uh, the judgments we are making in, in cases, because they are influenced either by demographic effects or by presentation effects, are unreliable. Now, the, the, the chapter develops these ideas in, uh, in, in great depth uh, and in much more details. Uh, you know, I look at the notion of reliability. I, I defend the idea that reliability is a necessary condition for us to trust our, 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 our judgment. And I explain why the effects we've been looking at, uh, uh, we've been finding in experimental philosophy, do suggest that not only for the cases we've looked at, but also for the other cases, the one we've, which we haven't yet looked at, uh, we should expect our judgments to be unreliable. Uh, so that's that's in a in a in a really sh uh, a few words the gist of of the argument developed in in much more detail in chapter three. Um, okay, so I mean, you 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 have the the premises and conclusion all all written out there and and subsequent chapters. So I we don't need to go into that detail. I'll leave that for for listeners to to actually look at the book themselves. Um, but you do use, I mean, there is an obvious, what you, what you call an inductive step, um, you know, where you're saying the, basically the X5 results show all this variation, 
um, and we can induce from these cases to generalize to to you know to all of them. You know, none of the judgments are reliable if they're based on the method of cases. Um, so, can you can you explain a bit your support of that generalization of the results to the method in general? Yeah. So, of of course. Um the effects that we found, that experimental philosophers have found, only bear on a very small number of, of cases. Indeed, we've, we've looked only at maybe 50 cases, at maybe at maybe 75, God knows exactly, maybe 40, I'm not sure. But of course, there are much more cases in, in philosophy and just another thing of the possible cases that we haven't yet written. Um, so there must be an induction from the issues with the cases we've looked at to the actual cases used by philosophers and, and to the other cases, the one which we haven't used in, in philosophy. And uh, I look at a few strategies to try to justify this uh, induction. And the one I end up with, the one I favor, uh, look at the canonical nature of the cases philosophers have looked at. And, and the idea here, what makes a case canonical? Well, a case is canonical um, uh, to the extent that it has, it has been used as a template for writing other cases. And the idea is that if a case is canonical, if it's used as a template for writing other cases, then the issues, the vices with the original case are likely to be found in the other cases. And indeed, most of the cases philosophers have used are actually canonical. So I've looked at our, um, the Gettier case is, is, is a, of course, one of the most canonical cases, not only in epistemology, but in philosophy. The Gödel case and uh, the Twin Earth case in the philosophy of, of language, the various form of Trolley cases and uh, sacrificial dilemmas in normative ethics, uh, the Frankfurt cases in uh, the philosophy of action, all these cases work a bit as, as, as templates. And the idea is that because they work as templates, their vices are likely to be found in the other cases philosophers have been using, um, uh, and also in the possible cases, because philosophers, when they're going, to, when they would, if they were to write further cases, would be somehow using those cases as, as, as templates. So that's, that's, that's a source that somehow justifies the induction from the cases we've looked at to a much broader class of actual and uh, possible uh, cases. That's, that, that's the idea anyway. Okay, okay. Um, and um, what, what makes them fundamentally uh, unreliable? I mean, you, you mentioned a number of characteristics, um, which you call disturbing characteristics of them. What, what, what is it about the cases that, that makes them unreliable, on your view? Um, so I, I I think this. So let, I think it's important here to be crystal clear. I do not think that um, judgments are unreliable. Judgments about knowledge, uh, uh, truth, beauty, good, the good and the right, the wrong. I don't think our judgments are in general unreliable. Nor do I think that our judgments elicited by texts are unreliable. Um, you know, when I when I uh, read. Uh, uh, so that, that someone says things which are obviously wrong. I will say that she or she does not know what she's talking about. And I don't take myself to be unreliable when I make this judgment. So I, I'm not skeptic about judgment. I'm not a skeptic about judgments by cases. I'm a skeptic about the judgment elicited by the kind of cases philosophers tend to use when they philosophize. And, I've, and, as a, and I think these cases have various, have very specific properties 
that makes the judgments they elicit unreliable. What are those properties? You just asked a minute ago. Well, I, I you know, I think here that's a place where the book gets a bit speculative because there is no empirical work in the question. But I try to identify a few of these of these uh, of these properties. The first one, these cases are uh, their content is extremely unusual. Right. That's not true of all the cases, but many of these cases have an extremely unusual content. Um, the Frankfurt case is, of course, an example. All the cases of fission and fusion are, are, are yet another example. Uh, cases where one has to kill someone in order to save a, 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 a larger number of people are also an unusual type of situation. So many of these philosophical cases are set in the type of situations uh, that are unusual, and as a result, the type of strategies that we use in usual circumstances and that allow us to get it right in those circumstances, it's unlikely whether they're going to work in these unusual circumstances. Uh, so that's one, one point. The second thing is uh, uh, there's an entanglement of what I call superficial and target properties. So the target properties of a case are the kind of things that really matter for philosophy. The superficial properties are just a narrative setting. And what's really remarkable in, uh, in philosophy, when philosophers write cases, they have this extensive narrative setting where what's really important, the target content, is uh, entangled with what's really not important, the superficial content. And what we've known, uh, I think, through model philosophy and psychology, is that many of our judgments about the situation described by cases are, in fact, derived not by the target content, but by the superficial content, right? And as a result, those, those judgments are unreliable. Uh, a third property, and I think that's of that, uh, in some respects, maybe the most important one, is that cases, to matter for philosophy, are going to pull apart properties that are bundled together in real life. Right, and uh, they are bundled together. So let me give you an example. A Getty case, for example, is going to be pulling apart justification. The agent is justified to, for, to uh, uh, the agent's belief is justified, and um, uh, sorry, the uh, truth. Sorry, let me let me start again. Uh, the uh, in the Getty case, uh, the so a Getty case is going to pull apart justification from truth. The agent's belief is true, uh, but it's not justified. Right. By contrast, in real life, justification and truth usually come together. Right. And I think it's an important feature of philosophical cases that they tend to pull apart the properties that when we make a judgment in everyday life are bundled together. Why does it matter? Well, again, it matters because the type of strategies that we use and that work well when properties are bundled together are going to be are not going to be working reliably when these properties are pulled apart from one another. Right, when they're separated from one another. And that and that's a very important feature. It's not an accident that cases in philosophy do precisely that. The reason is that philosophers are trying to, to identify the essential property, for example, of knowledge, the essential property of the right, and to distinguish this essential property from the contingent property. And to do that, they have to look at these cases that are going to precisely pull apart okay, these properties. So- uh, that um, go together in everyday life. So, sort of returning to a, a, an earlier, the earlier distinction you made between the minimalist interpretation, particularist, and so forth. Um, wouldn't uh, you know? I'm just 
sort of playing devil's advocate here, but wouldn't they, wouldn't one response here just be, well, that's why these are not everyday judgments because the cases are designed particularly to pull apart these things. And so claiming that they're everyday judgments is, is actually not the right way to interpret what's going on. They're really what, I guess what you call particulars judgments, they're judgments, but they're just not everyday. I, I try to to answer that concern in, in 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 the first chapter. I think it's a bit like saying, look, um, the process by which I the visual processes that take place when I see an illusion just on the usual visual processes because illusions are abnormal, are unusual situations. I said that would make no sense, right? Uh, illusions, of course, are unusual situations, right? We don't see illusions in our everyday life. But that does not really that, does, that doesn't mean that the visual processes that result in this illusory percept are unusual processes. No, they're just our usual way of forming percept. They're just deployed in a situation where they happen to be unreliable. Another, an, an, another analogy would be a thermometer, right? You use a thermometer; it works well in most situations. Then you put it in in, in fire; it stops working. Uh, well, you know, it's still, it's still a thermometer. It's just an unusual situation. I think it's important to distinguish a situation from the process uh, by which we make a judgment. That's why I think it's, a, it's an everyday judgment just applied in a very particular situation. Okay, good. That, was, that helps a lot. Um, so, um, I mean, you go, you go on to, to criticize, you know, if you, if, you, um, if you don't stop using these cases, if you continue doing philosophy the way you have been, uh, you risk uh, in some way enshrining our own sort of our own particular prejudices of our own culture, you know, Western, uh, you know, weird populations to use the psychological acronym, right? Um, uh, and could you, could you say something about the, the problem? I mean, you, you mentioned either a dogmatic response or a, or a parochial response. Um, uh, could you say something about these two sorts of responses? Absolutely, yeah. So, so here I'm mostly, focus, I'm mostly focusing on demographic effects, the idea that there's variation in response to cases across, across different groups. And uh, philosophers have responded to this fact in two different ways. On the one hand, you have people who say, look, People disagree. On the one hand, people say P. On the other hand, people say not P. One side is wrong. The question is which one? That's one response. And, uh, the, the, and if you think that's the best description of the apparent disagreement between groups in response to cases, then you have to deal with an argument I call dogmatism. Now, other people have responded in a very different manner. So, for example, Ernie Sosa or Frank Jackson. They say, look, so disagreement is purely verbal. It's not a genuine disagreement. People across groups use the same words or one word and its usual translation, but they mean different things. The concepts are not the same. And because the concepts are not the same, people are not really disagreeing with one another. They simply seem to disagree with one another. And if that's your way of thinking about the apparent disagreement that the philosophers have found, then you have to deal with an argument I call parochialism. In a sense, it's a sort of a dilemma which uh, 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 you have to deal whatever interpretation you have of the demographic effect. And let me just, in a, maybe in a, in a few sentences, tell you the gist of dogmatism and parochialism. So the gist of, the gist of dogmatism is, look, if 
two groups of individuals to, to caricature quite a bit, Westerners and people, and people in Asia, for example, disagree about a given case. And they genuinely disagree. They mean the same thing. They can't be both right. If they disagree about a given case, there is no reason to prefer one judgment over the other. Right? And there is no reason to prefer one judgment over the other because none of these two groups uh, uh, has an epistemic superiority. They are on the same footing. Their uh, justification, their epistemic standing is, is the same. To use uh, the um, uh, philosophical jargon, their, their expertise, they are peers, right? They have the same degree of the epistemic standing is the same. If the epistemic is, standing is the same, I argue that given the specifics of the situation I'm, I'm concerned with, on most views about peer disagreement, the two sides ought to suspend judgment. So the conclusion then is that we ought to suspend judgment in response to cases. That's, that's the gist of dogmatism. So the gist of parochialism is quite different. Here's the idea is that to caricature quite a bit again, let's suppose Westerners and, and people in China uh, are talking about different things, different properties when they use the same word, for example, the word knowledge or the word right and wrong, or the words right and wrong. Then the question we have to deal with is, why should we care about knowledge rather than what those people mean when they use a translation of knowledge? Why should we care about right rather than what those people mean when they, when they use the translation of right? So here's the worry is that so using the method of cases to theorize about the right, the wrong, knowledge, causation, would just be to enshrine our prejudices instead of really being focused to understand what should we really care about? Knowledge or knowledge star? And knowledge star here being, for example, what people in, in, let's suppose, China or some other country or some other groups are talking about. And I think there's, a, there's, there's here, it would be really unjustified to favor uh, what we are talking about over what other groups are talking about. And that's the gist of parochialism. Uh, okay. Um, so there's a number of defenses that you, that you go through of the method of cases. And... Um, uh, you know, one, you start out with uh, the skepticism about X phi. I think we can, we don't need to go through all of them, obviously. And I think uh, X phi itself has, you know, it's maybe it started as a bit rough and ready and, and not very, um, uh, you know, I don't know, well constrained, if you want to put it that way. Um, but obviously the methods have, have improved and people have, uh, gone in collaboration with psychologists and so forth. So I, th I think that that sort of skepticism about X-Fi has, has, has had its day. And I, I don't think that's a big issue. Um, uh, one, one of, one of the interesting ones that I thought uh, defenses was, well, why can't we reform the method um, in the light of the, uh, the the cases. I mean, suppose that, or in the in the light of the X five results. So, you've identified a few, uh, you know, speculatively some characteristics that that these bad cases have in common. Um, uh, what if we just you know modify the cases in some way? Is that is that you say that the prospects are not good? But I was just wondering if you could maybe elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, so um, I mean that's a very short section in in uh, the chapter where I look at at objection. It's a short section because 
there hasn't been any concrete proposal, right, about how to really reform the method of cases. And it's really hard to uh, assess, um, um, you know, potential reforms without having a very clear target. So in, in, okay. in, 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 in some ways, you know, I'm, 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 I'm waiting for proposals. The few proposals we've looked at that people have, have, have met just really aren't, aren't, don't seem to be successful. So people have said, you know, yeah, you, you would get fewer, you would get better results if you were, for example, to ask people to focus more, to take their time, to provide justification and so on and so forth. That just isn't true. Uh, when you actually prime people to be more effective, to take their time, when you ask them to justify their, their judgment, you find the same kind of, of results uh, that experts philosophers have found over the years. Even philosophers, if you look at philosophers' judgment, you find the same type of flaws that experts philosophers have found with lay people. So I think that gives us some, some reason to be a bit concerned with the idea that there's, there's really an easy fix for the method of cases. It's, it's possible there is one. But I don't know. And I want to say something also. Uh, here I'm really influenced by uh, Kahneman and Fersky's take on statistical judgments. So as you know, now 40 years ago, Kahneman and Fersky have shown that most statistical judgments are really biased. People have a very poor sense of randomness. People don't understand uh, the effect of small size on their reliability of their studies. People don't really understand the law of large numbers and so on and so forth. And the response was not let's well let's let's try to improve our, in, our intuitive judgment. Let's try to improve our judgment. The right reaction is let's set aside judgments in this in these areas. Right, judgments cannot be fixed in these areas. If we want to do statistics, we use formal methods. Right, we don't use we don't use our judgments. And I do worry uh, it may you know even so here it's a bit of a speculation rather than a, a, a well justified assertion. But I do worry that uh, the situation is very similar for the judgments that is still by cases that are of interest to philosophers. Okay. Um, well, let me just, uh, there, I, I forget at what point in the book you, you mention uh, uh, linguistics, which has been eliciting, you know, um, syntactic judgments for a very long time as, as just part of what linguists do, right? Um and uh, how do you, you distinguish the, the, those have seemed to be reliable at least? Um, uh, how do you how do you handle those other sort of cases where other you know non philosophers use you know unusual cases in some way and they seem to be doing just fine? So um, I think it's important to distinguish what linguists and psychologists do when they use cases and what philosophers most of the time, not always, but most of the time do when they use cases. So what linguists and psychologists do is they try to elicit something about the mind. Right? So they try to elicit something about the causal structures that lead to the judgments we are making. And so, so causal structures are mental structures. You know, your gra your, the grammar of the natural language you speak, for example. Psychologists also may try to assess the role of emotions in your moral judgments, or they may try to understand whether you're committed to some abstract moral principles, for example. Uh, and so that's what I call the formal use of cases. 
to be distinguished from what I call the material use of kisses, where you're not trying to do the psychology, you're not trying to, to, to see what's going on in the mind, you're trying to see, uh, to learn facts about the world, you're trying to learn facts about responsibility, about causation, about knowledge, and you use, uh, and you use uh, uh, your judgment to learn about causation. So that's, I think, one important difference. And um, um, the middle of cases may be more justified for the formal use of cases, Indeed, I defend it in the last chapter of the book than for the material use of, of, of cases, which is the target of the first chapters of the book. And uh, the second thing is that it's really important to, to, to remember that psychologists and linguists are also constrained by the very same things that I'm uh, highlighting in the book. So if you use sentences which are unusual, sentences which are complex, sentences which have various properties, you're going to get unreliable judgments in linguistics as well. People are going to contradict themselves, they're going to, or their judgment won't reflect their grammar. If you use, for example, in, in moral psychology, cases that are really violating people's beliefs about the actual world, people are not going to accept the assumptions that you are, you are asking them to accept, and their judgments won't be reliable either. So you find it's a very similar type of question, even when you're interested in as a formal use of, of, of cases. So I think, the, I think, in fact, when one compares linguistics on the one hand and psychology and on the other hand philosophy, it's really pretty clear that, um, 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 that the kind of cases philosophers are using suffers from flaws that linguists and uh, psychologists are trying to, very hard to avoid. Uh, I I, was, I just thought of another question, but let me let me um, uh, let me get to the upshot for you, um, which is this idea that we should, uh, as a result of these, you know, the 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 unreliability of the the, the judgments um, and so forth, um, that we should just set aside the sorts of uh, what you call modally immodest um, sorts of questions that a lot of uh, contemporary analytic philosophy is focused on um, and that we should be more modally modest. Um, can you explain that that upshot? Yeah, with pleasure. Um, so if you remember the Frankfurt case we started with, um, this case was used to undermine a modal claim, a, a claim about what's necessary for being free or responsible. Right, and 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 as I said at the beginning of, of our discussion, it's the one of the main users, if not the main use of the method of cases, is to tell us what's possible and what's necessary, to allow us to learn about metaphysical necessities. If we don't have the method of cases, I argue, then we will be unable to learn about these metaphysical necessities. Right, and so the debates in philosophy that rely on coming to know this metaphysical necessity that includes things such as physicalism, things are also various proposals to reduce one concept to another, for example, causation to a specific type of counterfactual dependence, knowledge to true justified belief plus something else. So all these reductive proposals together with a range of philosophical debates, which all assume an epistemic access to metaphysical necessities we're going to have to set them aside because we will not be able to solve them and we will not be able to solve them because we will not be able to gain knowledge of the relevant metaphysical necessities. So this uh, um, ambition 
to gain some metaphysical knowledge, some knowledge about metaphysical necessity, I think we should set it aside and we should reject the kind of philosophy that depends on gaining such 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 knowledge. Um, so that's 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 the gist of uh, um, of the conclusion, which I think follows from uh, a skepticism about the method of cases. Um. Okay. Well, yeah. One of, one of the things I thought at at that point of the book was these these this knowledge of of metaphysical necessities. I mean, that's been around for for thousands of years, along with philosophy and the method of cases itself is has really only been a prominent part of of analytic philosophy for you know as you mentioned you know 50 years or so so the the questions have been around for a lot longer the method of cases is is short um if we give up the method of cases it doesn't seem to follow that that's the only way that we have to get this metaphysical modal knowledge um so maybe we could give up the cases, but not give up those those ambitions. I mean, right? Aren't aren't there other ways to do it? Well, I think that's a very reasonable question. Uh, the answer, of course, is going to be no. Uh, so first, <laughs> <laughs> so first, um, um, I don't think it's true that the method of cases has, is only fifty year old. Um, you you find cases in in Plato. And, and quite 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 a few of them, you do find cases throughout the history of um, of philosophy. You find you, you find a sketch of a case, for example, in uh, Descartes' arguments against materialism. Uh, you know, it's conceivability that the mind and the body could be separated from one another. Um, so that's uh, that's also uh, um, uh, a case. Um, so you do find actually cases throughout throughout the history of philosophy. Even so, it is true that they've become very prominent in uh, philosophy over the last 50 to 75 years. So uh, I'll, I'll grant that. Now, to, to the gist of your question, there are, of course, various other ideas about how to gain uh, modal knowledge. And uh, in uh, chapter six of the book, I, I address more briefly uh, some of these ideas. I reject the idea that we have an intuit a special faculty, an intuition faculty, that would give us access to um, uh, metaphysical necessities, as some philosophers think we, we do. I reject the idea also that we can gain such knowledge by analyzing the meaning of words. Um, and, and here I rely mostly on a Weismann idea of open texture concepts. I don't believe uh, uh, so. open texture concepts are those concepts such that they do not specify uh, what is true in every possible uh, situation, and I think that raises uh, concerns for using the analysis of of meaning in order to find out about metaphysical necessities. And then I dedicate quite a, quite a few pages, dense uh, but 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 important pages, on using theoretical virtues to decide which uh, metaphysical theory is the best theory. So here the idea is that what philosophers really should be doing is build up theory and then choose the philosophical theory with uh, uh, the most theoretical virtues, the simpler theories, the more consistent theories, the theories that's compatible with the remainder of, of our knowledge, and maybe the most beautiful uh, theory. And, and here my strategy is actually to express concerns about uh, theoretical virtues themselves. So I do believe that in science, theoretical virtues are only used locally, right? And they're used in very specific circumstances. 
And again, their uh, justification, their justificatory role, one may say, in virtue of properties of the circumstances. If that's the right analysis of theoretical virtues, then we, we, we can't extend them to the whole of science and for theory to any intellectual endeavor, right? So in theoretical virtues are always local and there's no reason to believe that there are uh, uh, good strategies for choosing theories outside this local context, in particular in philosophy. So that's the gist of the challenge to using theoretical virtues as a way to choose among various philosophical systems. Okay, um, and we're we're running out of time, or, um, but I did want to ask about in the final chapter. You 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 propose what you call or what what seemed like a, a sort of naturalized conceptual analysis, which itself is is an interesting. You know, for many people, that would be a um, you know that would be a contradiction in terms and way in a way um could you explain what you what you're proposing there about you know to naturalize conceptual analysis no absolutely yes so uh, that work you know in a way follows up on my previous book doing without concepts and and i view con- i view concepts as psychological entities and one way not the only way to think about what i take a concept to be i take i take a concept to be a specific inferential pattern Right. So the idea is that you can identify a concept with a set of inferences you're disposed to draw that introduce this concept and a set of inferences you're disposed to draw that eliminates this, this, this concept. It's not the only way of describing what I take concepts to be, but that's a useful way in a philosophical context. And but this this in, this uh, disposition to infer are psychological things. Right. They are in, in our mind. And because of psychological things. They're not transparent to our minds. We can't know them by just looking at ourselves, by, by just observing ourselves. The only way to learn about these inferential dispositions is actually to do science, is to do psychology, is to bring empirical evidence, and in, in general, and in particular, experimental evidence, to study those dispositions. So I take conceptual, naturalized conceptual analysis to be the study of the inferential patterns our mind are disposed to draw, and that study must be empirical. I think it matters a lot for the kind of philosophy I care about, which is trying to uh, identify uh, cognitive vices, you know, dispositions that, are, that lead to mistakes, and trying to uh, improve, trying to correct these uh, uh, cognitive vices. Um, and that's the type of ideas I end up defending in, in in the book. Okay, very good. Um, so that that sort of gets me to the the last question, which is, uh, what's on the horizon for you at this point? I mean, what's your next project or projects? So as I said, I'm I'm very eclectic. So for for the next book, I'm switching switching gears entirely. I'm writing a book with John Doris on the replication crisis, and uh, as the title is probably going to be something like fragile science, and it's about why many sciences, psychology, neuroscience, epidemiology, seem so hard to do. Why so many of the findings that we took to be for granted, failed to replicate, what can be done about it, how should we organize science so as to, for it to be more trustworthy, and what should policymakers do when they're confronted with such fragile uh, a scientific inquiry. So that's, that's, that's a new book we are, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on um, now, and that's going to be, hopefully I'll have a draft by the end of the year, maybe eight months from now. Very good. Uh, well, we are um, we are out of time, um, but I've uh, enjoyed our, our conversation and I've uh, learned a lot about about what you're 
you know what you're doing and where you're where you're going with it so i thank you for taking the time to talk with us absolutely thank you very much as well i really enjoyed our discussion too okay bye-bye bye You've been listening to my interview with Edouard Machery, Distinguished Professor in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh. We've been talking about his new book, Philosophy Within Its Proper Bounds, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.